At the end of this episode, we have a bonus track with Nandini leading me through a mindfulness exercise. So stay tuned at the end and you can listen in and even join as we go through this process of mindfulling. Okay, welcome and welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And I am so lucky, fortunate, happy, excited, all of those things to welcome yet another young person. They're just coming out the woodwork, but I love these young folk. And um, I'm so happy to have with me this week, Nandini Nema. So Nandini, introduce yourself. Yeah. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Nandini Nema. I'm currently in Colorado. I'm actually a gap year student. So I'm in between high school and college. Um, just graduated from high school last May. So about to attend college in August. And it's very exciting, a very exciting time in my life. I really just took a gap year kind of just to explore my interest, spend time kind of addressing the issues that really matter to me, like mental health, which is why that Building Hope Summit that me and Karis attended together in Washington, D.C. was so awesome. It kind of felt like I was really making an impact in mental health like I wanted to do. And we really talked a lot about that summit, about like resources and tools that we can share with people and how we can help people in that realm. And I think that's really what I want to talk about today. So I'm very excited to be here. Yay, that is excellent. And I'm so glad you talked about uh, Gapier. Actually had a parent ask me, well, they were a little, I don't think they were really concerned, but they they were concerned <laughs> about um, whether or not their uh, kind of teenager was uh, taking a gap year, whether that should be something that's supported. And I was like, absolutely. Um, it's such a powerful time for many people just to figure it all out. Number one, number two, do something they're passionate about, which sounds like what you did. I, I told him, I, I, oh, I had a gap years. <laughs> it was not a year. It was several years, right? But um, it, it really helped me kind of when I went back to college, it's like learning had a whole different feel to it. And I enjoyed it so much. You couldn't get me out of school. So I just have a bachelor's, three master's. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> so I was like, look, just got to keep the gap year to a year and maybe you won't have that kind of problem because that's a financial issue too. But anyway, I'm so glad you talked about what you've been doing in your gap year, but let's kind of get into the particulars of what you've been doing. So when we met at the summit, there were a number of young people who came and some of them were nominated by organizations that they are um, doing special work for, if you will. So, and I know for you that it was through UNICEF as a UNICEF youth representative. So tell me what that means. And because that's an amazing thing too. Yeah. Thank you so much. So with the UNICEF, UNICEF youth representative, that's the first time I've done this ever kind of with UNICEF. And it has been Literally amazing. It's basically as a youth representative for your state. So me and this other girl are youth representatives for Colorado. And we are really trying to focus on UNICEF's plans specifically in Colorado. So there is a new child-friendly city initiative. Everyone go look at it. It is piloting in the U.S. for the first time in six cities. And one of those cities happened to be Boulder, Colorado. So I get to help work in that area and kind of expand that. 
Um, I'm working with the organization that's specifically focused on child-friendly cities. And we did something really cool recently. We got a bunch of kids together, including me, and we all talked about what a child-friendly city would look like for us. So some people talked about, I want a child-friendly city that respects children's future. I want a child-friendly city that respects a child's ideas. So the goal really was to get as many children involved and get their ideas out there and use those ideas to build a child-friendly city, kind of like by children for children, which I thought was really cool. And then we're also really focusing on bringing child's rights and that focus into Colorado, into the U.S. So either that's by creating new UNICEF clubs, um, retaining whatever clubs we have, um, holding discussions. I think we recently did a sensory hike. So we invited people of the Colorado community. We all went on a hike and I unfortunately was not able to attend, but basically the goal of that hike was to talk about child's rights and celebrate World Children's Day. That is a very strong thumbs up, snaps, you know, all that fun stuff. And um, there's so much that we talk about when you said, you know, mental health. Well, of course, we talk about mental health here, but, you know, we use the term nothing about us without us. So how do you create a child friendly city or if you don't have children and and young folk involved in um, creating that plan for the city? So that's amazing. So when you attended our strategy summit, the Inseparable Strategy Summit, what prompted you to get interested in mental health? Because that was all about sort of mental health, mental health policy, youth mental health. So what what got you interested in that? Yeah, so I would say I think I was always kind of surrounded by mental health issues, which is kind of unfortunate. But I really just saw a friend struggling through it, family members struggling through it, peers struggling through it, myself struggling through it. And when you're surrounded so much by something, it really, really starts to become important to you. And at the summit, I remember they were talking about how there's a statistic out there that mental health affects every family in America. And I really think that is true. I mean, everyone I've talked to has been exposed to mental health in some way, whether they were struggling with it themselves, or they had a loved one struggling through it. So I think that's very upsetting. But I think it's also a really important call for action you know, that it's a call for action for me. And I think for all of us that we as a society need to figure out how we can uplift each other and really take care of each other's mental health. And I kind of like to call it collective mental health. Um, But there's a lot of cool things I think you can do. Uh, I worked a lot with Children's Hospital Colorado. And really, our work was to make patient lives brighter every single day. So we had projects throughout the four years. And some of my favorite were like, raising $6,000 for an art therapy program. So we really had those children use art to connect with and to cope with psychological and physiological issues. Um, Another cute one was in the summer after all like the weddings were over because summer is kind of wedding season, we would go to those wedding venues and ask if they could donate the leftover flowers from the weddings. Mm -hmm. And then we would make a bouquet out of them and hand them to patient families. Um, And then another one was like hosting a homecoming dance for the teenage patients. So they could still kind of have that like, you know, teenage high school experience, regardless of where they are and regardless of where their illness. So I think there's like a lot you can do with, you know, collective mental health and helping collective mental health. And there's a lot you can do for yourself, too. You know, kind of as I go on my own mental health journey, I'm finding tools, finding resources, finding this idea of mindfulness that has really helped. Wow. Wow. That's really cool. I love that. The um, idea first of collective mental health, because I think, you know, when I, when I hear that and I hear how you've been doing this with other folks is that it's not um, always reliant on the quote unquote people who work for the systems. 
Anybody yeah. could do it. A community member could do it. A families could do it. A church could do it. You know, any house of worship could do it. Your clubs could do it. So I think that's sort of um, a really um, cool way to think about how anybody can figure out how to think about taking care of their own mental health and well-being and also supporting somebody else. I think that's super powerful. And when you talked about mindfulness and, you know, you had written me a little bit of the difference between, and, and I'm going to use these terms. These were not you, your terms. These are my terms until I use one that you shared with me, which was um, that mindfulness can feel a bit passive, I think, more kind of like, I'm just sort of sitting there doing something, but you're very active. And so you have another term that Kind of puts it into a more active frame. And what is that term? Yeah, so I like to call it mindfulling. Um, and kind of the idea behind this is that as I went on my own mindfulness, like mindfulness and mental health journey, you kind of come across the same type of phrases, mindfulness, be present, be in the moment, love yourself, let go. And these phrases are very helpful reminders, I think. But I also think at times these phrases can be overwhelming. I found myself questioning kind of when it came to mindfulness, how do you be mindful? How do you just be in the moment? And it kind of started to feel like this pressure that I had to be present all the time to be happy. And I think we all know that living in the moment is a little bit easier said than done. So I think the greatest thing I learned is that mindfulness is not an end goal I need to achieve. And I honestly really thought it was. I really thought that one day I would just do yoga and meditation and be the most mindful person in the world. And it's not that. <laughs> Mindfulness really is a process. It's a movement. It's constantly changing, constantly evolving, but it's also something you can always turn to and something that you're always like, that's all, that will always be there for you. So I actually see a sleep therapist for my insomnia. And we talk a lot about mindfulness because that helps with insomnia. And together, kind of at the end of our conversation, we talked about changing the word mindfulness to the word mindfulling to kind of symbolize that it's a process, not an end goal. And I think in my head, a process is like, okay, I can do things to kind of get on this mindfulling process or mindfulling train or mindfulling path rather than, okay, mindfulness is an end goal that I have to achieve and do all of these things. And it's like a pressure. So I think through her and reading and talking to other people, I really found mindfulling tools and exercises. And these are amazing because they kind of answer that how-to question, which is really great, like how to be mindful. And they're also simple, non-overwhelming, really only take a few intentional minutes of your time. And you can look back throughout the day and be like, okay, I took a few intentional minutes out of the day to take care of myself. That's something I can be proud of, something I can be grateful for. So these are my favorite ways to look at mindfulling or mindfulness, however you want to call it, but just really as a process and as a path that you can get on through tools or exercises or some method of self-care. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Snaps, claps, you know, thumbs up, all of it, all of it, so much of it. I wish I had extra hands to do it. But and, and the reason I'm saying this is um, <laughs> that is so great. I used to do this app and I, and I talk about this when I um do presentations on um, technology and how to use different types of apps for your mental health and well-being. That's not always for some people. And I guess, you know, it's always about choice, of course, and what works for you. And I was trying some out and I always like to go for evidence-based apps or apps that have some evidence or research behind them. That's sort of the way I start. Is any research there? No, no, I'm going to stay away from that one for half a second, right? So I was using one and what it asks you to do every day, it would, um, you select a time that the um, app would shoot you a text message to rate your, uh, your 
your mood. Yeah, it was a mood app. And so you could rate your mood from one to 10 with one being like low and 10 being, you know, very good, not not overly, you know, good where you want it. And, and of course, when I was first um, using it and it sends you this message every day, just send in a rating. And if you want to write some notes about why did you rate yourself at this level, you can. And so I was rating myself and sometimes, yeah, it was not good at all. And I would just say, sad. I wouldn't say much more because I didn't have any energy or or if it was around a five or a six, I would be like, you know, got enough sleep, feeling good, like that kind of thing. And I started to review this with my um, a mental health provider and I was noticing I was not getting above a six. And, and, and then I thought, well, I'm not doing something right. I'm literally not doing something right. Why can I not get to a 10? 10 means you're optimally where you ought to be. That's how I understood it. And the more I thought about it, and I had been doing this for about a year because I wanted to actually keep track. And I, we were actually using it with my mental health provider. And I said to him, (laughs) he said, this is really interesting. You know what? I think my 10 is a six. I don't think I'm a 10. I think my 10 is a six and that's like my optimal. And I'm, that's really good. Um, And it's like when I get below a six or below a five, maybe four, that's when it's like, well, maybe we should start to take a double look at some other things I could be doing or whatever. But my goal shouldn't be to reach the 10. My goal should be to hover around five or six. That's cool for me. So it's so powerful. I think when we um, kind of discover these resources, how to make sure they work for us. Right. Um, so when you said that, I was like, oh, yeah, I was moodfuling. <laughs> Maybe I wasn't mooding, I was moodfuling. I don't know. But that's really kind of cool to uh, put it in that active frame. So thanks for sharing about that. Yeah. When you talk about tools and stuff and, and resources, you've also done some work sort of with technology, right? With a summer intern thing. Oh, help me out. Yeah. So Um, There's actually been a couple of things I've done with technology and health. I think the one that you're talking about is related to Google. So I was very fortunate this summer to be a Google Summer Scholar. And that was more of a scholar type thing. So it was more of classes. But the great thing about it is that we got to do a lot of projects throughout the week. I mean, every single day had some sort of small project. And at the end of the week, we would have a larger project. And um, at the very end of the entire session, we had like one full week for any final project of our choice, um, kind of with the group. So it was really great experience for me to like kind of learn about coding and programming and collaborative projects with some of the world's best engineers and programmers. But I also think the final project was really cool because it was focused on health, um, not specifically mental health, kind of health as a whole, including some mental health factors. And basically what we had done is created a medical search engine, kind of like Google, but it was more of a medical search engine where our goal was really to give information about a medical health concern in a clear, simple, non-overwhelming way. And I think people talked about this at the summit. How can we give tools and resources to people in a way that's meaningful and non-overwhelming? Because it can be helpful to give just a long list of resources, but to a lot of people, they might look at that long list and be like, yeah, no, I don't want to go through that. Like, what is the point of going through all of this? Most of these are not going to help me, all of that kind of thing. So the idea behind this kind of medical search engine was like, how can we give it in a meaningful, non-overwhelming way? And I think that's really important when it comes to mental health as well. And what else have you done sort of in that in the tech, tech sphere? So one of the things I've done, this was a little bit earlier, my junior year of high school, 
I did some research in the realm of like mental health. And that research was really interesting. It was, I worked with a professor and he's amazing. And he was very encouraging and taught me a lot, like truly a lot. And uh, we talked a lot about how we could predict mental health symptoms. And so our idea was kind of like, how can we take behaviors that we already know about from data, um, demographics that we already know about from data, brain activity that we already know about from data and take that and see if we can predict how this specific child's mental health symptoms change over time. And like, if you think about that, that can give a lot of power to doctors. If a doctor knew that in two years, this child's anxiety would get worse because of a certain factor like her gender, then maybe we could intervene right now and prevent those symptoms from even happening in the first place. So unfortunately, this project did come to a halt because of like missing and inaccessible files. But I feel like I learned a lot that research and data and like, like you said, evidence-based research, research things can do a lot and completely transform the way we approach mental health and how we can approach mental health treatment and diagnosis in specifically children through prevention and early intervention. And I think, too, as we're talking, you know, especially as, um, you know, people of color and um, if there are not enough people of color who are designing some of these tools, we know that sadly there can be inherent bias built into the algorithm that doesn't take into, you know, uh, cultural factors into account because, you know, well, I don't know, some people just aren't thinking about that. So I think that's super important, too. So uh, when you are thinking about tools and resources and mindful, mindfulling or mindfulness, those kind of things. You also talked about um, ensuring that there are providers who uh, represent or representative of the people they serve. And so um, how can we encourage, do you think, we, we know that there is a dearth of providers of, of color. We just, we just know that and the statistics are you know, below 10% for majority groups there, majority minority groups, I'll put it that way. Um, so, you know, what do you think are some things that we should be doing to encourage people to get into the field yeah. of mental health in particular? Yeah, so my idea would be specifically talking to students who are thinking about their career, who are possibly thinking about advocacy work that they want to do in the future, volunteering work they want to do in the future, and really honestly tell them that their voice is important and really needed in our mental health field. Because I think as people go into the field looking for help and looking for mental health support, it is really helpful when the person who is helping you looks like you, um, relates to you, or at the very least wants to understand where you're coming from and what your culture is like. So my sleep therapist is not from my culture, but she's very willing to understand what it's like for me and why I have specific problems or why why my life is the way it is because of my culture, because my culture has had a huge impact on my life. Um, my parents are immigrants from India. I've been very fortunate to grow up with a very tight knit Indian community, which has been amazing. But I've also been able to see with that how mental health is approached completely differently in that community compared to my community at school or my community that I volunteer with or do advocacy work with. So I think it's very important to tell students of all sorts of like colors and cultural backgrounds, like whatever it is, tell them that their voice is needed. We need culturally diverse people in this field. And you can honestly make a difference because when culturally diverse people from the US go and look for mental health help, it would help if the 
range of options they had also matched them, related to them, looked like them. Again, wanted to understand what it was like for them. So that's kind of like a basic idea for me. I wanted to ask you how you think we should go about this as well, because I think it's interesting to talk about people's different ideas. Yeah. So I think a couple of things. One is first, I, I you know, 1000% agree. And um, my, my mental health providers are white and they're both men, which is interesting. Yeah. I have, have had providers who are um, women and I, you know, started to have this mother situation. And I was like, nope, nope. And I don't even care if they were white and, and, and women. There was this sort of thing that would happen where it's like, why am I talking to my mom? You know, like transference, whatever they call it, counter-transference, whatever it's called. So for me, um, initially finding somebody who looked like me was very tough, both on the um, professional side. So whether it was a psychiatrist or a therapist, but also interestingly enough, on the peer side, here in LA, I think it's a little bit better, but when I've been elsewhere, the diversity within the peer workforce isn't that huge. I'm just going to be honest about it. And and we're working on that. And I think now that we can articulate and know that we should be thinking about that, I think there's um, more intention about helping people think about even getting into becoming a certified peer specialist or peer, which can happen, you know, from 18 and above or 16 or something like that. So that's one thing to think about is providing um, information to students about all the different opportunities in which they can provide support and help right now, if they want it as a 16 year old, you know, you can um, do that through lots of different types of um, community-based and state-based training. So And then um, I think when we're talking about sort of pipeline into the professions, that's actually one way to think about it. Like the more I think we can give people opportunities to give it a try, to understand what it entails, how it can help people, and whether or not that matches with, you know, I call it their core gift. I think that's great. I think the other reason that I did this podcast, quite frankly, is so people could hear different stories of number one, you know, people's recovery journey, especially people of color. They could hear from different providers and how they got into the field. The podcast that I love them all, but but one that I think I've learned absolutely the most about because I had no clue was a pharmacist. I mean, I know what a pharmacist does, right? You know what the, the guy, the guy or the gal on the corner, you know what they do at yeah. your corner drugstore, right? But I had no, I did not understand what do they do in a hospital setting? What do they do in a community mental health setting and how they can actually augment or even partner with your other providers to help when you're struggling with taking meds or not wanting to take meds and, you know, the kind of training that they go through, like brand new information. And then lastly, I think take advantage of some of the opportunities that are available through specialized programs like public health service. Also, there are uh, SAMHSA and other types of grants for specialty areas that are unserved in the mental health field for unserved communities or unserved populations. So there are lots of different ways for people to kind of get into it and talk to people. And get involved, honestly, like whatever you can do, like just get involved. Like, for example, in my high school, me and a couple of other people, not a couple of other people, there was a good 20 people, um, but we were peer leaders for an organization called Sources of Strength at our high school. And it was basically kind of this wheel of like health, like eight kind of sources of strength, they would call them, but it was really just like healthy coping resources, like um, healthy habits, positive friendships, mentors, and more of that kind of things. And basically, our goal was to share this 
kind of, I think, just to tell people that when they're struggling with their mental health, there's always people, there's always resources, there's always tools that you can lean back on and reach out to to support you. So kind of our goal as peer leaders was to introduce this wheel or sources of strength to at least 75% of our student body because it was like a brand new organization at our high school. So we gave speeches, we um, made an interactive art mural, which I thought was really cool. We like set up the eight categories and like students would come by and write like what their source of strength was in that specific like specific mm-hmm. category and like paste it on the wall. So like if the category was healthy habits, they'd write, oh, going to the gym and like put it on the wall. So a lot of people participated. It turned out really great. And I think like those kind of resources and tools out there are a really great way to remind people that you're not alone when it comes to your mental health. There is yeah. a great power in sharing tools and resources. And even those students who were not technically peer leaders, who participated in that interactive art mural, we're making a difference. And we're putting out there that these tools work for me. If I share them with you, they might work for you. And I think that's the amazing part of sharing tools and getting like just getting involved however you can to share those tools, which is, you know, kind of what I wanted to do today. I have a couple of tools that are my favorite that I would love to share, but we can get into that at any point. Yes. Now let's do it. Share, share, share. So again, um, these tools are mostly evidence-based. They're cognitive behavioral tools. And my sleep therapist gave them to me. And her kind of idea around them is sometimes we have very big, overwhelming thoughts, you know, and feelings and emotions, and they can be very heavy. And it's important not to ignore them or push push them to the side. But sometimes in that moment, you need to disrupt them just for a minute. You need to disrupt them, kind of get out of that space. And then maybe later when you're calmer, come back and talk about them, journal about them, which I can get into later, Um, whatever it is that helps you kind of acknowledge and deal with those emotions. But the tools, at least in that moment, help you disrupt those thoughts and kind of bring you to a little bit of a calmer state. So I have a couple of favorite. One of them is counting while breathing. So you breathe in for seven counts and breathe out for 11 counts. And you count in your head or count out loud, whatever it is that works for you. And really the idea behind these tools is that your brain is powerful, but it's not that powerful. It can't do that many things at once. It can't count, but also focus on these big overwhelming thoughts. So when you shift your focus to counting, it helps you kind of disrupt those thoughts. Another one is kind of like you can tune into your senses. So if you wanted to tune into a sense like sight, one exercise is called the rainbow room. So you look around the room and you point out what things you see based on the colors of the rainbow, starting with the color red. So for example, in my room, I see a red packet, um, I see a red pillow, I see a red paddle for ping pong, and then for orange, like on my wall, I see some artwork and that has orange in it, and then I would keep going until I hit purple. And again, like your brain can't really focus on that many things at once. So this is again, a good disruptor. Um, One is like touch, so you can put a hand on your diaphragm right below your chest, one on your belly and like take some really big deep breaths and really just focus on the feeling of your diaphragm expanding, then your lower belly, then your lower belly contracting, then your diaphragm contracting. Um, You can do muscle relaxation. You can flex your hands and feet or whatever it is as hard as you want. And then I like to just kind of release and kind of imagine all of that tension melting away. I like to think of it as honey, just like tension, like melting Mm. away honey from my hands and feet. 
Yeah, that's amazing. There, there's a couple of others that um, I like to do. Yes, I was actually about to just ask you, what tools and exercises do you do? <laughs> yeah. So I like to do math problems in my head. Okay. I think sometimes doing some of the other things in my head, I can get distracted too, too easily. So math problems are, you know, I can't get distracted because I got to finish the problem kind of thing. So I might do, you know, times tables or things like that and kind of keep going. I like repeating pi in my head as far out as many digits as I possibly can. And then um, pi as in the number pi, not as in how many apple pies am I eating at the moment? No. Um, and then <laughs> uh, lastly, I like using the uh, photos in my camera and kind of putting them in folders so that I can access those, those folders during different times, during different feelings. So if I'm feeling sad, I know to go to the puppy folder and look at all the pictures of puppies, my puppy in particular, other people have sent me pictures of their dogs or cats or what have you. It's still called the puppy folder flowers. Also, when I kind of need a, um, a sort of a, a wake up, I like, I don't know what it is about sunflowers and things like that, that are in the folder flower. So that's another thing I do too, that um, is readily accessible and nobody knows what I'm doing. Now, of course, you know, if I'm in the middle of a meeting, I can't always look down at my phone and start looking at flowers and stuff. So <laughs> I, that's either math problem time and or what you were talking about, kind of doing the um, kind of census time. So that's great. Yeah. And I think that's amazing that you have like different tools. And I, I think everyone will have kind of these different tools. So I guess that it's great that we're sharing them because hopefully someone will listen and try it out and find something that works for them. And really the point of it is to just experiment and figure out what really works for you. I have a long list of tools somewhere, but really only a few really work for me. And hopefully they will work for others when they hear them. And it's really just a form of self-care. Like, again, it's just taking a few intentional minutes to take care of yourself. And we all deserve a form of self-care. Yeah. I think that these tools and exercises are really just a great place to start. And again, like it's not meant to ignore your feelings and push them away, but it's really just meant to disrupt, distract just for the minute, make you feel a little bit more centered, a little bit less overwhelmed, and then you can come back and work through those feelings. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. And I, I think people could also put those types of things in there. Um, again, I, you know, me and my tech and my phone is if I live on my phone, which I uh, <laughs> sort of do, but um, putting them in your note section, you know, mm -hmm. and just kind of listing them. And so that it's a reminder too of kind of, you know, what to, what to do when, or like remind yourself, put it like, would you put it in your calendar with a little alarm that, you know, maybe five minutes before you go to lunch, if your lunch is at noon, take five minutes and do one of these things that might be kind of cool either before or after lunch that I, I'm going to put that in my calendar. I'm going to try that. Yeah. <laughs> Just sitting here thinking. Yeah. So let me, um, you're, you're getting ready to go to call. Wait, are you going to college in the fall? This coming up fall? Yes. Okay. And so what are you going to study and all that stuff? Because you've got lots of stuff going on here. What are you, you going to study? Yeah, so I'm doing a combination of computer science and leadership. So with computer science, like again, kind of that technology thing I've talked about, I do think that I really found really cool ways, like through my research, through internships, to connect technology to health. And I think that would be a really interesting path to explore with computer science and engineering. And then along with my engineering courses, I have a couple of leadership programs that I was very fortunate to be in. So I get to take those classes and kind of figure out how I want to be a leader in this world, society, local community, whatever it is. 
um, and really go out there. How you want to be a leader, you are a leader. So <laughs> let's just start there. <laughs> So, oh, fantastic. I want to thank you so much for, you know, spending this time with me. This was, you know, such a great opportunity to learn more about you. I know at the summit, there was a lot going on. So I didn't get to spend a lot of time with everybody and kind of learn more about everybody. But this has just been such a wonderful, wonderful opportunity, personally for me and hopefully for our listeners. But it is time now to do that thing that I do at the end of each podcast. And I asked each of the guests to do some wisdom dropping. You dropped tons of wisdom during that conversation, but is there one more piece of wisdom or something that you didn't get to touch on that you would like to share with the audience before we wrap up? Yeah, I think I would just like to say when it comes to your mental health, um, a good reminder is that we're all human. Our emotions, whatever range it is, it's normal until it's very disruptive to your life, then please go seek help. But to an extent, some of your range of emotions are very normal. They're very human. Let yourself feel it out. Let yourself experience them. Talk it out. Journal. I'm. This is my shout out to journaling. I'm a huge fan of journaling. I will always encourage people to do it. Of course, it's not for everyone, but just for me, it really helps me get all my thoughts and everything kind of out at the end of the day. Um, otherwise, my mind is just running, hence the insomnia. So I like to just like take it out at the end of the day, you know, close my journal and tuck it far, far away in a drawer and just peacefully go to bed. Um, and I think it really gives you the chance to understand yourself and understand that you are a unique human being with unique feelings. And once you understand that, you can really cope with your mental health better and really make it a priority. You know, your mental health is a priority. You're very human. You deserve that level of self-care. You deserve that level of taking care of yourself and taking care of your mental health. So just make sure you do that. And I think that's what this podcast and all those tools that both of us got to share really is for. Awesome. Awesome. I will leave it at that. I have nothing to add, but thumbs up, claps, everything. That was amazing. Claps, snaps, the whole nine yards. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. I really appreciated this conversation. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, y'all know what to do. I always say, you know, do it, don't do it, whatever, subscribe, all that kind of stuff. Uh, The most important thing, and especially I think this is a great example of why sharing the podcast is really the most important thing. So other people can get access to this great information. So really, let's share the podcast with others. I think that's the most important. And until next week, we'll see you on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. Okay, let's go. Let's do it. Okay, and then the listeners, whoever's listening, can also do this as well. But basically, I would just start with opening your palms and placing them on your thighs or wherever that's most comfortable and gently just close your eyes. And take a nice, big, deep breath. And then we're going to start tuning in to basically all of our senses. But I always like to start with just one and then slowly go through all five. So the first one would be, I guess, what I hear. So just take a minute to kind of focus on all the things that you hear. So maybe it's people talking far away. Maybe it's the sound of cars passing by. Maybe it's the sound of a heater running. Whatever it it is, just kind of tune in that. And then maybe switch your focus to what you feel. 
So maybe you feel your feet pressing into the ground, or if you're sitting on a chair, you kind of feel a chair beneath you. Maybe you feel the clothes on your body, jewelry on your skin. Whatever it is, just take a minute to kind of focus on all the things that you feel. And then maybe tune in to what you smell. So if you're outside, it could be the smell of like crisp, fresh air. If you're inside, maybe it could be the smell of food from the kitchen. Maybe focus in on what you can taste. So I just had gum, so I kind of have that minty taste in my mouth. Um, because it's morning time, maybe it's the taste of coffee. And then basically, whenever you're ready, you can just open your eyes and kind of just look around and focus on what you see. So maybe it's light, dark, artwork, the colors from the rainbow room exercise. And that's basically it.